How are we doing, church? Doing good? <clears throat> good. You look good. All right. You decided to sleep in. That's awesome. Welcome. Glad you're here. Grab your Bibles. If you've got one, we're going to be in. You ready for this? All right, everybody, hold on. We're going to be in Matthew 18. All right, so, so go to Acts and then go to the left. All right, go to the left of Acts and uh, you'll, you'll find Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to start in Ephesians 4. Don't even try to find that. That's crazy. Um, and, but I'll be in Matthew 18 in just a second. We're starting a brand new series to kick off Lent for the next seven weeks. We at the Church of 1122 join with thousands of other churches all over the world, both Catholic and Protestant, and with, I don't know, tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of churches throughout church history um, in, in what's called Lent. Lent is just uh, uh, 40 days. It's actually more than that, but when you pull out the Sundays, it's 40 days that gets us ready for Resurrection Sunday. And we're not ready yet, but we're going to be ready on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrected Christ. And so a part of the way we do that is just by practicing some some old school spiritual disciplines, and we pray and fast and give. And so fasting on Tuesdays from sunup to sundown, we fast. And it's just an opportunity to tell your flesh no. And so if you're medically able, we want you to not eat on Tuesday from sunup to sundown. And we pray. So fasting disconnects us from the world. Prayer connects us to your Heavenly Father. And so uh, from 12 to 1 right here uh, on Tuesdays, we'll have a prayer meeting. And so you're invited to be here for that since... I just freed up your lunch hour anyway, see how that works. And then, lastly, we want to call our whole church to give generously during this season of Lent. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Um, Nobody can serve both God and, and all the other things he decided to put in that blank, he decides to go with money. That money can often be the number one competitor for our heart. So we want to disconnect from this world and be connected to our Heavenly Father, particularly over this Lent period, so that we can be ready on Resurrection Sunday to blow the doors off of this place. And with that in mind, we're doing a seven-week series called The Seven Deadly Sins. The Seven Deadly Sins. We listed them all on your bulletin here, and the bulletin's going to be real important today, so you want to grab onto that. And uh, part of the reason why is because, you know, you can invite some people to come to church with you, like, be like, hey, mother-in-law, gluttony's coming up in a few weeks, and I think that you can learn a lot. From that, so you want to be here for that. So you can invite your friends to whichever one, you know, whichever sin they deal with, because I know you don't deal with any of them, all right? And, which leads us to uh, a little bit on the seven deadly sins. There aren't actually seven deadly sins in the Bible. Um, All sins are deadly. And there's not like certain categories of sin that are more deadly than other sin. All sins are deadly. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So if you're a sinner, like I'm a sinner, then you've earned death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But the great 20th century theologian, Coach Bull Lee, used to tell me, if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. And these seven sins, these seven kind of categories of sin, have historically been some of the most slippery places in our lives. And so today, we're going to kick it off by talking about wrath or anger or bitterness, whatever you want to call it. And and I know some of you will think, well, you know what, I don't really struggle with anger because I'm a Christian. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated, all right? Which is just a Christian word that means angry. And let's just be honest, you know you've got some of that in there, don't you? I know you do because I've seen you driving on JTB. I've seen you freak out on your kids, like in Walmart. Isn't it? it sometimes your kids just say the simplest little thing and you just go, you're crazy on them and you're like, what, what is going on in here? 
I was in Walmart one time, and this lady's looking at her little kid, and she was just trying to get some candy that's right there, eye level, and by looking in the basket of the mom, she did the same thing with her adult-appropriate stuff, right? Get crap she didn't need. Kid was trying to be just like mom, and the kid's freaking out, and the mom looks at her and goes, relax! And I thought, she's never going to understand what that word means, ever. <laughs> and I also know that we struggle with anger in here because I've talked to our parking team, and they've told me stories about you entering and exiting our parking lot. And so, um, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, don't turn there, just trust me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, here's what Paul says. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So, I'm kind of from the counseling department of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul would say, hey, are you angry? Uh-huh. Are you bitter? Mm-hmm. Are you mad? I'm mad. Got some wrath? Got it. Okay, don't do that anymore. That's how Paul rolls. He just tells you, just take that bitterness and just put that away. Makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? But how do you do that? How do you take anger and wrath? What is the weapon against anger and wrath and bitterness? Paul says, put it away, which is impossible. I mean, how do you do it? It's like trying to sleep. You ever try to sleep? Like, ah, I need to go to sleep. Just, you know, you can't make yourself sleep. Or it's like if, you, if, you, if you're afraid of heights and I'm going to just take you up to the top of the building and put you on the edge... And you're shivering and afraid. Are you afraid? I'm afraid. Okay, stop it. How do you do that? Well, Paul says, he goes on and says, here's how you do it. Here's how you put it all away. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so, anger, anger or um, wrath or bitterness is what happens when somebody sins against you And instead of choosing to forgive, you choose to withhold that forgiveness. And and it can be a big deal. It's it's, anger oftentimes will exhibit itself in just a, um, in in really an unexplainable amount of emotion around something. It would be sort of like if somebody hurt you, you know, stabbed you or hurt you and created a wound. You could cover it so that none of us could see it. And you'd be okay most of the time. But if we bumped up against that open wound and you would scream out, ow! Don't touch me there, that hurts. And if we couldn't see the wound, we'd think, oh man, what is going on there? And so oftentimes when people sin against us or hurt us, it's a big deal. They create a real wound, a real painful wound. And to withhold forgiveness towards the person that has sinned against you is what allows that wound to fester. And to offer forgiveness begins the healing process of that wound. And so... What Paul says in Ephesians 4 and what Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 18 is that the the weapon against the sin of wrath, anger, and bitterness is found in forgiveness. So if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus kicks it off this way. He says, if your brother sins against you, to which we could honestly say when your brother sins against you, that there's going to be times when somebody is going to sin against you. Now, at church especially our church, we spend a whole lot of time talking about what do you do when you sin. You confess, you repent, you claim the blood of Jesus. We talk a lot about your sin, but we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about what do you do when somebody sins against you, when somebody has caused pain to you, when you're angry against somebody else and it's their fault. They did this thing to you. And so Jesus is going to address this here. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, let's just be honest. Nobody does this. Nobody does this. 
Nobody talks to people instead of about them. Don't we talk about them instead of to them? I mean, that's what we do. If we could just do this one thing that Jesus has commanded here, it's a game changer. I mean, if you would just talk to your spouse instead of about them, if you would just talk to your boss instead of about them, right? And listen, and just calling it a prayer request in your disciple group doesn't mean that you're not talking about them. Like, oh, I'm not talking about them, but we need to pray for Ted, okay, because he lied to me, and here's why, and when, and here's the last time he did it. And just because you say amen at the end doesn't mean it's any less gossip, okay? And so Jesus says that you're supposed to go talk to them and not about them, which is why when people, you know, churches are notorious for having people coming on behalf of other groups of people. Hey, pastor, I'm not angry, but I am here to represent a group of people that are upset about this something. And I go, well, hey, listen, I don't want to aid and abet in your sin, so you can just hush and give them an invitation to come to me. See how, see how caring I am for you that I won't even let you break this command of Jesus by talking about instead of talking to? We, if we did this, it's a game changer. Now, a couple of things before you guys all take off to have these one-on-one conversations this afternoon. Um, Because the people most eager to do that probably shouldn't. I'll just say that too. Um, First of all, it says if your brother sins against you. First and foremost, you've got to understand, is, is the person that has sinned against you, are they a Christian or not? Have they surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ? Because unsaved people act unsaved. People who have not surrendered to Jesus act like... They haven't surrendered to Jesus. And so if that's the case, you have a gospel conversation about the forgiveness of all of their sin, just not the particular sin against you. That's your conversation. And then, secondly, so first, are they a Christian? Secondly, have they sinned against you? All right? Just wearing your same dress at a party is not a sin. You know, sometimes it's just personal preference, not God's precepts. And so in prayer and in Bible study, you better know the difference between your personal preference and God's precepts. But if it's the case, if it's your brother or sister in Christ and they sin against you, you go to them, you tell him his fault, and if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the whole point of this one-on-one confrontation is not to point out their sin. That's not the end game. The end game is forgiveness and reconciliation. That if they love Jesus and you love Jesus and you guys are both walking in step with Jesus, then you ought to be able to walk in step with one another. That's the whole point. The point here is reconciliation, not winner and loser. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this does not mean an intervention. This is not like, surprise, you hold them, I hit them. This is not tag team confrontation. This is... You've sinned against me. I've come to you one-on-one. We're brothers in Christ. It is a sin. I'm pointing this out, how you've offended me or hurt me, for the point of reconciliation, but the person's not hearing it. So then you go within your sphere of influence and get godly wise counsel, an objective third party that can help mediate this relationship. And not only is that person going to help, this is is the scary part, not only is that person going to help that other person who sinned against you see their sin, They're also going to help you see your blind spots. So when you're pointing these things out, you've got somebody else there with you that says, hey, you know what? You're actually in the wrong on this one. It's why every single person in our church should be in a disciple group. So that you could have that immediate sphere of influence that could help you navigate these relationships. And I don't know if you know this, but everybody in here that has a relationship with another human being, you have a relationship with damaged goods. We're all broken. We're all wretched. We're all damaged goods. We're all fixer-uppers. 
And so if you hang out with people long enough, you're going to be sinned against. And you're going to have to walk through this. And so step one is go one-on-one. Step two, according to Jesus, is if they don't listen, you, you get a couple people to go with you so that you can, again, pursue reconciliation. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, let me just tell you quickly what this does not mean. This does not mean tell it to the church service. Okay? It's why we don't, on a weekly basis, say, hey, can all the unrepentant sinners please come down front so we can point out your sin to everybody here at our service at 1122, and then we rebuke you and then send you on to Dick's Wings. No, that's not how we do. What it means is, if you've gone one-on-one and and you can't reconcile or forgive, and then you've got some godly counsel with you and you still can't reconcile and forgive, then you go get the church leadership, the elders, deacons, staff, because we are here to walk with you to walk alongside of you. And it doesn't mean tell it to the church service. It means tell it to the people that are in charge of making the decisions at the church so that we can help reconcile. There was a girl in the gym that, that I was inviting to church and inviting to church and inviting to church. This is years ago. And she said, you can quit inviting because I ain't coming. The last time I went to church is the last time I'm ever going to church. And, and you can just tell there was a lot of emotion around it. And so eventually after I got to know her a little bit better, I asked, what happened? What happened? Because you get all upset when I just mentioned going to church, you know. And she says, well, the last time I was in church, I was 16 years old. Now she's probably mid-40s, late-40s. She said, last time I was in church, I was 16 years old. And uh, I was a volunteer, and I worked in the kids' department, and I served. And I grew up in the church. It was my home church, and my grandparents went to the church, my parents went to the church, and then I got pregnant at 16. In this little country church, on a Sunday morning, when they found out I was pregnant, they marched me down the center aisle, put me right in front of the church, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock service and made me confess my sin to the church. The church rebuked me and said I was not allowed to attend that church anymore because of not only my sin, but the negative impact I would have on the kids' ministry. That is not what this means. It says if you're an unrepentant sinner, then we should treat you as a tax collector or a Gentile. Well, let me ask you this. The king of the church, the head of the church is Jesus. How did Jesus treat the Gentile and the tax collector? He died on the cross for him. He rolled out the red carpet for him. Now, Jesus didn't take the unrepentant sinner and put him in charge of everything, okay? So, there is, you know, you can get disqualified from church leadership and even church membership if you're an un- unrepentant sinner. But this isn't, this isn't kicking people out of the family of God. Listen, we're a movement for all people. If you're a sinner, you'd make a great disciple, all right? You'd make a great disciple. And so, we want to treat you, we as the church of 1122 want to treat you the way Jesus treated people. So if you think about John chapter 8, when Jesus, when, when the religious leaders bring this woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus, and, and all the Pharisees are there with stones, because they said the law says we're supposed to stone her, and he goes, all right, whoever hadn't sinned, throw the first rock. And they're all like, mm, can't do that. So they leave, and then Jesus says, look around, lady, who has condemned you? And she looks around, and she says, no one has condemned me. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. That's how he treats her, rolls out the red carpet, no condemnation. But he also tells her the truth. Now go and leave your life of sin. So both things are true. And so the point here is not excommunication. The point is, if somebody is an unrepentant sinner, then you do whatever it takes to lead them to a relationship with Jesus so they can repent and be reconciled in the church. And the best place for that to happen is actually in here, not out there. And so he says... um, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, 
That whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, your earthly relationships have an, have an impact on your relationship with God. Verses 19 and 20 are two of the most misquoted verses ever. 19 says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You know why? Well, you've got to read this in context, okay? You've got to read it in context. The context here is in, in the midst of, of a, a person that sinned against another person, and they, they can reconcile that relationship. This doesn't mean that if you and your Christian brother agree that you get to drive a Cadillac, then God owes you a Cadillac. Do you know how I know this is not true? Because every weekend, McCarthy and I agreed that the Bulldogs should win. We would be the national champions every year if that's what God was talking about here. But he's not. What he's talking about is no matter how bad the sin is, that you can be reconciled. That you can be reconciled. Why? Because if you love Jesus and that person loves Jesus and you're surrendered to Jesus, then Jesus can mend any broken relationship. That if you two will agree on reconciliation, then that can actually happen. Verse 20, another misquoted verses. This one's always misquoted by worship leaders. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You hear worship leaders do that sometimes, you know, they're singing the song, and they're like, wherever two or three are gathered. They usually say that when not a lot of people came to their service, right? Wherever two or three are gathered. You won't hear our worship pastor quote this verse out of context because we actually have a worship pastor that reads more than one verse at a time when he reads his Bible, so he kind of understands the context. This isn't about singing songs to Jesus. This is a verse about when you're willing to do the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation, God is just as involved in that mending of relationship as he is when we're doing what we perceive as spiritual stuff, like singing songs or taking communion or baptizing people or saying prayers. That the manifest presence of God is in the midst of you forgiving and reconciling, and you need his presence to be able to pull it off. And so Jesus says, all right, if anybody sins against you, then here's what you do. Go to them one-on-one. If that doesn't work, you don't let it go. This is, a big, this is a big deal. So then you get a couple of people with you to help mediate that conversation. And then if that doesn't work, get the leadership of the church to help. And it's possible to forgive and be reconciled. And then, <clears throat> verse 21, Peter comes up and asks the question, and you got to love when Peter speaks up in the Bible because he asks all the dumb questions that you and I would really like to ask, okay? Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, what you don't understand here is that Peter, when he asked this question, Peter thinks Peter is awesome. Peter probably pulls the disciples together and is like, come here, boys, gather around. Listen, <clears throat> you know how I'm like the rock. You know, upon this church, I will build, I mean, upon this rock, I will build my church, and my name's Peter, and I'm Rocky, dun, 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 dun. remember that part? All right. And you know how I'm the only disciple that ever walked on water, so I'm clearly the best disciple? I know I fell down, and everybody wants to make a big deal about that, but I had three good steps on the water before I actually started sinking. So y'all remember all that? So watch this. I'm going to take Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, and I'm going to, you know, I see your forgiveness, and I'm going to raise you seven. And so he goes to Jesus, and he says, all right, Jesus, so... I'll forgive my brother, but how many times should I do this? As many as seven, dun, 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 dun. And then he thinks that Jesus is going to slap a big super Christian on his chest and give him a cape to fly in the wind because Peter is the super Christian. Why? Because you know how many times you had to forgive in the Old Testament? None. Forgiveness is not an Old Testament value. 
It wasn't forgive. It was eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? It's sort of punch, counterpunch. That's how we rolled in Dylan. You punch me, I'll punch you back. That's how it worked. Well, in the, it, before Moses came along, the reason he had to institute that, the reason God gave that law, is because it was, um, you poke me in the eye, I cut off your head, right? You steal my goat, I kill you. You cuss me, I kill you. No matter what you do to me, my response, I kill you. And so the law of God comes along and says, no, 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 we at least got to go retribution, you know, goat for goat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so Peter's saying, so should I forgive as many as seven times? I mean, that seems pretty gracious, doesn't it? And then Jesus is going to answer. Verse 22, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times is what the ESV says. Literally in the Greek, it says seven and 70. Now, you got to know, he doesn't literally mean 77 times, or even seven times 70, 490 times. He doesn't mean that literally. And you know how we know this? One is by our own experience. Because if he literally meant 490 times, then husbands, in about the eighth month of your marriage, your wife would have come to you and said, all right, Ted, you got three more. And then Jesus said, I don't have to forgive you anymore. So... Essentially, what Jesus is saying is seven is the number of completion times 70, the, another number of completion with a, with a zero on it, meaning forever and ever, exponentially, amen. It, it's like not even a real number. It's like a bazillion. You should forgive 70 and seven times, or like a bazillion. You, you know, it, it, it's sort of like when we, when we exaggerate, we'll use the number 100, like, Hey, what took you so long at the grocery store? Well, you know, there's like 100 people in line in front of me. They're really six, but you just kind of 100. We do it all the time, right? Um, it reminds me, I was in college. I was training these three dental students. They were all from Kuwait, and they'd come to, to Virginia to be dental students. And I was in school there, and, uh, and, and they had money and wanted to meet American girls. And so they thought if they worked out, they'd meet American girls. And I had no money, and I knew how to work out, so I thought this would be a beautiful relationship. And so... You know, I was trying to make them a Christian. They're trying to make me Muslim. It was awesome, but we worked out together. <clears throat> and so after you get the workout part going, then you got to go nutrition, right? You got to go nutrition. And so I tell them, look, boys, you got to up your protein. You got to get like a knife and a fork and cut something and eat it. If it just sticks to your fingers, then it ain't going to give you muscles, okay? So, and then they say, what about breakfast? And I go, okay, for breakfast, you need to eat egg whites. Egg whites have a ton of protein. And so you got to eat a lot of egg whites. Just boil some eggs and just eat the egg whites. Eat as many as you can. How many do we eat? I mean, like a hundred. I mean, just eat them all, right? Eat a hundred egg whites. Not really thinking through the translation. That was a Friday. Monday, they come back in the gym, and they go, for the sake of Pete, how do you eat a hundred egg whites? I'm like, you try to eat a hundred egg whites? No, that's not. How many did you? We had 22. You ate 22 egg whites? How did you eat 22 boiled eggs? That's not what I meant. I just meant a squillion. Just as many as you can. You're never going to meet a girl. All right, so... So this is kind of what, what Jesus is saying, that you should forgive a bazillion times. Or maybe another way Jesus would, would help us understand this is, Peter, you should forgive as you have been forgiven. So you remember that Lord's Prayer thing we've been working on? That part, you should forgive others like God has forgiven you. So how many times has God forgiven you? So you go, one, two, a lot. Well, that's how you should forgive, and that's how many times you should forgive. Now, to illustrate this, Jesus is going to do just classic Jesus move right here. So he's teaching this principle very directly, right? Go one-on-one, then get a few people, then bring it to the church, forgive seven and 70 times. 
And, and the, the disciples are probably still looking a little confused. So now Jesus is going to tell a story, a parable. And, and, and what he's going to do here is he's going to use this parable about money, but he's not talking about money. He's talking about forgiveness. And the context of this parable and the, the implication of this parable help us understand not just the truth that we should forgive, but also how we are to forgive. I heard a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, unpack this probably a decade ago, and it changed the way I understood forgiveness. And I've walked so many people through this, couples, individuals, through this understanding of forgiveness. I thought we'd do it all together. So he's going to go story time here, but you can't lose sight of. We're not talking about money. We're actually talking about forgiveness. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You need to underline that word owed. So now remember, again, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. So what he's going to say here essentially is, if somebody has sinned against you, then it's as if there's a debt-debtor relationship. If there's somebody in your life that you need to forgive, it's like they took something from you or they owe you something. We'll even use this in our own language, won't we? That you owe me an apology. And so, in this particular context, this guy owes him 10,000 talents. Now, when he said 10,000 talents, the whole audience knew that this was a fake story. Ten, uh, uh, one talent is 20 years wage. 20 years wage. You know, the amount of money you would make in 20 years. So, this guy owes him 10,000 20-year wages. So, everybody in the group is like, that's impossible. That's like a trillion dollars. Can you imagine somebody owing somebody a trillion dollars, being a trillion dollars in debt? Just imagine. And so... So this guy owes him like a trillion bucks. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Verse 26, and so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. To which if you were listening to this, you'd go, no, you're not. It'd be impossible. There's no way you could pay back a trillion dollars. You can't work long enough. You can't work 20 years, 10,000 times in a row to pay this guy back. So this is an impossible payment to make back. You can't even pay the interest, no matter what your interest rate is. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Underline those words. So here's a servant that owed the master, and he couldn't really repay it anyway. And then the master forgave the debt. Now remember, we're not talking about money. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about forgiveness. Jesus sets this up for us to be thinking about forgiveness um, as canceling of a debt. And so, if you would think that the servant who just got his debt canceled, that he'd go out and he'd be excited, take everybody to dinner and buy all the food, right? But here's how he acts, verse 28. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is about a day's wage, so he just got a debt canceled that he could never pay back. And now he goes out in the street, and here's a guy that owes him a debt that he could pay back. You know, in about four months, this guy could could pay him back. And so he he finds a guy who owes him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So he's just received forgiveness, but, but he is going UFC on this other guy and choking him out, verse 29. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And look at this. He uses essentially the same words that this guy just used with the king. Have patience with me and I will pay you. And here's how he responds. 30. He refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, I don't know if you've been to prison lately, but they don't pay well. 
So even though it's only probably about twelve thousand dollars, you can't you can't pay this debt back on a prison wage. Verse thirty one. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. So from an outsider's point of view, these outsiders are looking at this servant who just had this incredible debt forgiven, but he won't forgive a small debt of a guy that owes him. And in their mind, they go, how could this possibly be? This doesn't make any sense. We are greatly distressed. I mean, we were in there when the king was forgiving you of a trillion dollars. How can you not then forgive this guy of $12,000, it just doesn't make any sense at all. I hope you see the gospel here. That's the point of the parable, that you would see why we need to forgive because we have been forgiven much. And so they go and they go and tell the master. <clears throat> Verse 32. And then his master summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. And again, once again, the guy can never pay the debt back because jail doesn't pay well. And then this next verse, verse 35. Now, I take the Bible very, very seriously. And because I do, verses like this really, really make me nervous. I mean, really make you nervous. If you take the Bible seriously, this verse 35 should really scare you to death, make you question your salvation, trembling in your knees. I mean, hell is hot and forever is a long time, okay? And this verse is, is pretty pointed. So here's what Jesus is going to say to sum up this whole parable. So also my Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, is that saying that you have to forgive somebody in order to earn Christ's forgiveness? No, it's actually saying the exact opposite. What he's saying is, if you have actually received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, then you would obviously extend grace and forgiveness to other people. Because Christ on the cross, he forgave you of all of your sin, all your past sin, all your present sin, all your future sin, and all of your sin was heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus. All of it, and you could never possibly repay him for your sin. And no matter how sinful somebody has been to you, it it pales in comparison to our sinfulness against God. And if he forgave you, and the gospel actually penetrated the depths of your soul, then you would know that your natural response would be to forgive. Not because that person is forgivable, but you weren't forgivable either. I wasn't forgivable either. But that we extend forgiveness because we are forgiven. The forgiven people... Forgive people, period. And if you withhold forgiveness, maybe you've never been forgiven. That if you don't give it, you ain't got it. And I know that's bad grammar, but it's good theology. That's what Jesus is saying. If you don't give it, you ain't got it. That if the gospel has saved you, then you know that you cannot simultaneously look down your nose at somebody and withhold forgiveness and kneel and look up at the cross by which you were forgiven. So that's why we forgive. Because they deserve it? Uh-uh. Because they asked for it? Did Jesus wait until you asked for it? Or did he go to the cross first? You see, the Bible says that, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, like we're still sinning against God, and Christ died for us. 
And because we have been forgiven much, then we are to forgive. So it's usually at this point where if you're still with me here, that, that here's what you're thinking. I know. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but if you just knew my circumstances. I mean, I know. All right, so if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I can forgive them. Or if somebody, you know, my kid lies to me, I can forgive them. Whatever. If God steals a, a, a deal from me at work, I can forgive them. But you don't know what I've been through. I mean, you don't know the depths of the pain that she put me through. You don't know how many promises he's broken. If you would just give me 10 minutes, then I could explain to you why I get to hold on to this sin for the rest of my life. And so it it reminds me about four years ago when we were a service at Beach, this guy had become a Christian at, at the 1122 service and he started reading his Bible. And he gets to Corinthians and in Corinthians it says that, that Christians aren't supposed to sue each other. And so he sends me this email. He goes, hey, you know, I'm reading through my Bible. It says in Corinthians we're not supposed to sue each other. Is that true? Because I got a lawsuit that I was about to file against another 1122-er. And I go, yeah, actually, you're supposed to go Matthew 18. You go one-on-one. If that doesn't work, you get some godly counsel. If that doesn't work, you bring in the church leadership and we'll help you navigate this as brothers, right? And so he emails me back. He's like, yeah, but you don't understand. This is for $70,000. To which I email back and go, oh, okay, that's cool because that verse has a $25,000 cap on it. Okay, anything over... 25K, it doesn't really matter anymore, right? Wrong. <clears throat> and so that's the, the same thing is true with forgiveness. Because we tend to overestimate our goodness and underestimate how evil we actually are. That, that we were enemies of God. That all of our sin was a slap in the face of an almighty God, and yet he forgave us at the cross, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. And that same Jesus that died on the cross, the spirit of his son lives in us. The spirit of of God lives in us and can empower us to do for others what he did for us. And so we are called and commanded to forgive. And let me just tell you, when you get sinned against, and you're going to get sinned against, when you get sinned against, you got two options, bitterness or forgiveness. Those are your two options, bitterness and forgiveness. And when we withhold forgiveness and somehow think it's punishing that other person, it's like eating rat poison thinking that all the rats in your house are going to die. This doesn't work that way. And so we are commanded to forgive. Now here's, the, here's, here's why this parable helps me so much is because there are just, <clears throat> there's just so many, there's so many things that, that we misunderstand about forgiveness. Um, for example, we think that, that forgiveness is a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. And so we get forgiveness and feelings all wrapped up together. And oftentimes we'll think, um, well, I, I, you know, I thought I forgave that person, but every time I see him, I kind of want to run over him in my car again. And so maybe I didn't actually forgive him. Or we'll go the other way. We'll say, no, I forgave him, but don't ever mention their name around me again. Or I forgave him, but we're never going back to their house for Christmas. Or I forgave him, but, you know... I'm going to defriend him from Facebook. And that really is the seventh level of hell. Is it not when you get defriended from Facebook? <laughs> so forgiveness is, is not a feeling. We're going to see in just a minute that forgiveness is a choice. That it's a, it's a willful, conscious decision. Um, also, forgiveness is not about fairness. Because here's what you think too. We think, yeah, but if I forgive them, they get away with it. If I forgive them, it's like I'm letting them off the hook. You know what you're essentially saying when you think that? What you're saying is, um, God can't really handle this one on his own. 
I mean, I know he's like master of the universe and all of that, but on this one, if I don't help him uh, put a little wrath in their life, they might actually get away with it. And God really needs me to torment them here on this earth. What Jesus did on the cross for our sin was not enough. I know he endured endured the full wrath of God, but I just want to add just a little bit more to them in Jesus' name. So he didn't need your help for justice. The other thing, um, I don't know if you, well, yeah, I do. You're just like me. Here's what you do, too. Here's what we all do. You ever notice when you're the offending party and you walk into the king's chambers, you want grace? And when you're the offended party and you walk out of the king's chambers, you demand justice. Right? So forgiveness is letting God deal with those folks. Also, um, forgiveness is a process. It's a process. If you've been sinned against and wounded deeply, it's not something that you just get over. You get over the flu. You don't get over wounds. Now, wounds heal and still have scars, but it's a process. And so, a lot of times, people in church think, Christians think, well, aren't, I'm supposed to forgive and forget, right? No. No, that's dumb. First of all, it's impossible. How do you forgive and forget? You, you actually need to forgive and remember that you forgave. Now, you could, you could cast aside some of the some of those um, awful thoughts and feelings that you used to have. And your feelings won't change overnight, but over time, maybe your feelings can catch up with the choice to forgive. Not, some of you need to forgive and remember. Like, and, and, and some of you need to forgive and testify or forgive and call the police. You know? That, this doesn't mean a rescue from the consequences. This just means that you are going to choose to forgive. And so, um, you know, preachers talk about what we're going to talk about. So I was talking with a friend of mine about the fact that we were talking about forgiveness. And I was kind of walking through some of this stuff with him. <clears throat> and he, he shared an awful experience about somebody that was in his church that thought that you're supposed to forgive and forget. And so this lady, when she was a teenager, was sexually abused by a family member. And that when she grew up, she thought she was supposed to forgive and forget. And so she allowed that same family member to watch her children. And then it just repeated itself. So no, you don't forgive and forget. You forgive and remember. Yeah, you may never need to put yourself in those kind of abusive situations again. Absolutely. But, but if you think you're just going to get over it, you, you don't just get over it. It becomes a part of who you are. Also, there are some folks that don't want to forgive because it's your excuse for poor behavior. And if you forgive, if you forgive, then you, you don't have an excuse for your drinking problem anymore. Because right now you feel like you can lean on, yeah, but if you knew what I went through when I was a teenager. Or if you knew what she did to me. And for some of you, you'd love that excuse for, your, for the, the vile things that come out of your mouth. Oh, it's not my fault. I was beat up early. And so you realize deep in here that if you offer up forgiveness, then it takes away some of your excuses for doing the things that you do. And you actually have to be accountable before God and to yourself for your own actions. And so sometimes we, we want to hold on to it. Because essentially what we do when we do that is we rationalize bad behavior. And in Jamaica last week, a pastor friend of mine, he said this about rationalize. He said, when you rationalize, you just tell rational lies. And that's often what we do when we're trying to excuse bad behavior because of something that happened to us for a long time ago. Also, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness just depends on you. You, with the power of the Holy Spirit, can forgive all by yourself with his help. Reconciliation takes two people. So forgiveness is often just the right hand extended to reconcile.
But reconciliation requires somebody else to reach back out, and it takes two people to reconcile. And so, just because you forgive somebody doesn't necessarily mean that that relationship um, will be reconciled. And so, once again, when you get sinned against, you got two options. Forgiveness or bitterness. And so what Jesus helps us with here is how to forgive. Because many of you have tried to forgive over and over and over and over. And you feel like, well, it didn't take or it didn't work. Because I'm still, I, feel, I still am in bondage from what this person did to me a long time ago. The wound still hurts. It has not healed. And so if we look at what Jesus does here in talking about forgiveness, it will help us be able to choose to forgive. So Jesus says when we're sinned against, it's like somebody has taken something from us or they owe us something. And forgiveness, don't even think about the word anymore, just because we associate it with feelings too much. Forgiveness is a canceling of the debt. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness says, okay, you did these things against me, but you don't owe me anything anymore. And so if you'll open up your notes, this is important. I want every single person to do this, all right? <clears throat> Here's a debt ledger. Now, you remember in the, in the parable, it started out, there was a king who went to settle accounts with his servants. Well, what forgiveness is, is it's a settling of accounts with you and whoever has sinned against you. So the first thing that you do is you've got to identify who has hurt you or identify who you need to forgive. Identify who has taken something from you. Now, sometimes it's super easy, you know? Somebody stole money from you, it's easy. If somebody's hurt you, you know, or lied to you, that's easy. Sometimes it's a little difficult if you just have these these. The anger just comes out of nowhere. You might need to say, man, what am I holding on to? Why am I holding on to this bitterness? Why am I so angry? Who is it that I need to forgive? So one of the ways to track that is just pay attention to the imaginary conversations that you have. You guys ever have imaginary conversations? You know, like you're riding down the road and you say, man, if I saw my boss right now, I'd tell him. Don't they go so awesome in your mind? When I have imaginary conversations, they usually go like this. I see this person, and they don't know I'm coming. And I walk up, and I say, hey, I need to talk to you, brother, because you have sinned against me. And immediately, in my mind, a a crowd assembles, and they start going, Joby, Joby, right? And then I tell them whatever they did against me, and I quote a few Bible verses, and I just give it to them, and they're speechless, and they don't know what to say, and they fall to their knees, and they say, please have mercy on me, for I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I say, in my grace and in my mercy, I forgive you because I have been forgiven. And the crowd goes wild. It never goes that way in real life, right? Usually they say something back to me, and I go, oh, I didn't know that. And it changes my whole plan. But pay attention to those imaginary conversations. You should probably, they may have taken something from you. They may have sinned against you. Also, this is tough. Now, again, I want you to get out your, this deal and, and answer that. Who has hurt you? Here, here's something else I struggle with. There are people in my life that have sinned against me. But I respect and love them so much, I just want to give them a pass. Like, I don't want to write family members in that box there. Because I just want to get over it. And then the problem with that is you never actually cancel the debt. You just ignore it. And you wonder why you've got this, got this bitterness going on in there. Um, another thing, too, because I've heard people ask me this. What if the person that sinned against me is dead? You know how crazy it is that you're letting a dead person ruin your today? And it happens all the time. But again, remember, uh, you, you're not going to be reconciled with somebody that's dead. They can't do their part. 
but you can forgive. And so you just identify who hurt you. And here's where, here's where the real work happens. For some of you, a lot of us, you got to write your own name in there. Because you hurt you. And you stole from you. And you broke your own promises to you. And you said you would never again, and you did, and you drove the whole thing into the ditch. And you know when you look around the wreckage, you're at the, you're at the steering wheel. And the truth is, if you're in Christ, he's already forgiven you, but you've got to forgive you. Now listen, at the end of the service, we're not doing anything with these. You know why? Because this is going to take real work. This should take you at least all week. And this isn't nearly enough time or, or space, is it? And so we don't expect you, I don't expect you, while you know, the band is up here singing us a song in three minutes, you can write some stuff down and then come put it on an altar or nail it to something or catch it on fire or do something campy and all hold hands and sing kumbaya and then we walk out just full of Jesus. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I also know this, because it requires real work, it's a very small percentage of you that will actually follow through on it. Because some of you have learned to ignore the pain or to deal with the pain. Or your pain has just become like a little pet for you. And you've, you've learned how to manage it instead of actually forgive it. Which leads to the second step. You've got to identify not only who hurt you, but you've got to identify what do they owe you. What do they owe you? And again, this takes a lot of work. And here's what I mean. <clears throat> like if you've got anger against your ex, look, they, they took something from you. When they left, if they cheated on you, they took something from you. And you got to be honest about that. And the problem is, in kind of a pseudo-spiritualism, some people have tried to say, well, you know what, I'm a big boy, I'm a big girl, I can just shake it off, I'm okay with it, it didn't bother me. You're lying. You know you're lying. Then why are you still so bitter? And as soon as I started talking about it, a name popped into your mind, or a face popped into your mind, or an event popped into your mind. Because you've been harboring that unforgiveness. You've been trying to manage it, but it's still deep in there. And so you have to identify, here's who hurt me, and here's what they took from me. That they, you could tell them, look, you took from me happily ever after. You promised. We stood in an altar, me and you and the pastor in front of our parents and our friends and all my really good friends in those funny looking dresses, and you promised till death do us part. And then five years in, you said, oh, we've grown apart. I don't remember that in the vow. You owe me. You owe me your promise. Or some of you, somebody else is tucking in your kids, and they owe you that. That was yours. Your dream was that you'd at least get to tuck in your own children every night. And now some other dude, you can't stand him, and he's tucking in your kids. And they owe you that because they were unfaithful and left and took their kid, took the kids with them. Or your parents, your parents owe you your childhood. It's a big deal. For those of us that have divorced parents, I mean, some of us will think, you know what, you owe me ninth grade again. As a 13-year-old, I should not have had to deal with what I had to deal with in the ninth grade, all right? Everybody else is doing sleepovers, and I'm trying to figure out where we're living. You owe me that. It's a big deal. Or you owe me my reputation. There's a whole group of people in our city now that look at me different because of the lies that you've told them. And you know it's not true, but for your own gain, you told lies about me, and you owe me that. Or some of you had business partners, and you started years ago, and you started your own business, and y'all were partners on everything, Batman and Robin. We're doing this together. And it started from ideas, and then ideas started turning into money. And let's be honest, they were all your ideas. You had the good ones. He was just along for the ride. 
And then now, somehow, you got worked out of the deal, and now it's not even your company anymore, but it was your idea, and he's making bank, and you don't have a job? And that guy owes you. He owes you the payday. He owes you your reputation. See why nobody does this? That's why 100 people in this room will do it this week. That's all. Because it's going to stir up some real stuff. Now listen, when you write those things down, then next to it, you also got to write, and what feelings do you associate with that action? When you left me, I felt abandoned. I felt alone. I felt unloved. Dad, when you used to call me those names, I felt so devalued. When you lied about me, I felt so betrayed. And here's the thing. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's huge. You know how big it is? That God had to send his only begotten perfect son to die on the cross for the sin committed against you. How dare you defame the name of Jesus and the cross by trying to act like it's not a big deal. That's why that bitterness and anger still controls you because you never just admitted the wound hurt so deeply and I can't just get over it. And you spend the time and you write this down. And listen, I know that some of you are dealing with some real issues. Look, I read the prayer cards. I talk to you. I pray with you. I read the confession cards. I know that there are people in this room that have been abused, that have been raped, that have been molested. You don't just jot something on a piece of paper and it just goes away. It's a real debt. It's a real debt ledger. And if you'll take the time to do the hard work in prayer and just stirring it all back up and you create this debt ledger, you know what you have? If you could take the person that sinned against you, that one that you really want to get back, if you could take them to court before God, you could say, okay, God, here they are. And here's exhibit A. Here's the sin they committed against me. And it's legit. It hurts. And it was real sin. And now, you have a decision to make. Forgiveness or bitterness. Those are your options. You can cancel their debt or you can continuously require them to owe you for the rest of your life. Now, let me just tell you. Let me make a case for bitterness, okay? If you're not going to forgive them, then just hold on to it. I mean, just embrace it. Get Blow this up poster size. Write very, very clearly. Laminate it. Frame it. Put it in your house right next to Nana's picture. When people come over, there's Nana, and that's why I hate Jim, okay? Look at him. He's a jerk. Look at all the things he did. He's terrible, isn't he? All right. Let's defriend him. Maybe you'll be the only person in human history that it works for. Maybe. The other option is to cancel the debt. To cancel the debt. To say, think of it this way. Don't think like, don't think about your feelings. Think about it this way. You don't owe me anymore. You took something from me. It's legit. We have a debt, debt debtor relationship. But from this day forward, I choose to cancel the debt. To forgive you. And you don't owe me anymore. Why? Because you're forgivable? Uh-uh. Because Christ forgave me. And because I'm forgiven, I forgive. Because the gospel instructs me to do so. And that means that in, let's say five years from now, Jesus saves that person, they repent, they're convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they come to you to confess, and they got down on their knees, and they said, hey, listen, I owe you an apology. You'd say, well, well, stand up, stand up. You can confess to me, because that's good for your soul. 
but you don't owe me anything. I canceled that debt a long time ago because Christ had canceled my debt. And then what I, the reason I want you to actually write it down on paper and actually have a debt ledger is so that you can decide what you're going to do with this thing. You can either hold on to it. And if you do, seriously, put it, frame it. Put it in your bedroom. Be reminded of it every day. Take a picture of it. Make it the background of your phone so every time you call somebody, you'll be like, oh, I hate that guy. All right? Just embrace it. Go with it. Now, it's going to ruin you. Ruin you. Ruin all your other relationships, too. But if that's what you're going to do, at least just own it. Or cancel the debt. And then do something with the paper. I mean, cancel it. I, I know some people that have dug a hole and buried it, and put a little tombstone on it. You know why? So that they could forgive and remember. Because what's going to happen, I'm telling you, because I know some of you have been hurt so deeply, and the wound is still so fresh. And what's going to happen is the enemy is going to remind, he's going to start stirring up some feelings in you. And you're going to see that person, or you're going to be reminded of a situation, right? And then you're going you're to have all the same feelings that you had before you canceled the debt. And then you're going to doubt whether you've done it or not. And so that's why you've got to forgive and remember the day that you canceled the debt. One buddy of mine a few years ago, he took his debt ledger, and it was long. It was like a legal pad, full, all kind of stuff, and bad stuff, abuse, bad stuff. And he burned it. When he decided to cancel the debt, he burned it, and he collected all the ashes, and he paddled out at the pier And he had a little ceremony. He sprinkled the ashes in the ocean. So that every time he paddled out, every time he saw the ocean, every time he went by the beach, he would be reminded that he canceled the debt. And the people that hurt him very deeply didn't owe him anything anymore. Why? Because Christ had canceled his debt. So that's the challenge for the week. Again, C.S. Lewis says it this way. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Do you know that if you're not a Christian, I don't think you're well equipped to forgive. I'm not saying you're not smart and you can't have great relationships. You absolutely can. No, nope, you can't. But, but, but if you have not fully experienced forgiveness, then it's going to be really hard for you to forgive. Really hard for you to forgive. And so, here's the truth. You know, God's got one of these on you and me. God's got one of these on you and me. Who's hurt God? Me. I've defamed his name. I've lied to him. I've, I've, I've used his name in vain. I've broken promises to him. I've been Lord of my own life. I've worshipped creation instead of the creator. I've got my priorities out of whack. I've just lived in, in absolute debauchery. I mean, I've done so many things to defame his name. And then the list of what I owe God, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And if I worked every day for the rest of my life for 25 more generations, I couldn't repay him all the debt of my sin. And then at the cross, at the cross, the first thing Jesus said is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know what he has to say about me now? Father, I still forgive him, even though he knows better. And the last thing he said is this. It is finished. What is finished? My debt. That Jesus paid for my debt. And if I fully receive it, then I've got to fully offer it. So for some of you, for some of you, the reason you have broken relationships on earth is because you have a broken relationship with your Heavenly Father. Because your sin is in the way of you and your Heavenly Father. The good news is, the good news is, is that Christ has already paid that debt. 
that his offer of forgiveness is the extension of his right hand of fellowship. And for you to be reconciled with God, then you believe. Then you choose to receive the canceling of your debt. And that for all of us who have had our debt canceled, then we are commanded to cancel the debt of those who have sinned against us. Would you bow your head right where you are? If you're here this morning and your debt has never been canceled, you thought that you had to pay God back for the bad things that you've done. And today, for the very first time, you begin to realize that you can't pay that debt back. But what Christ did on the cross will cancel that debt that you could be forgiven, that you could be in a right relationship with God. And today, you would like to have your sins forgiven and that you and God could be reconciled. You could know Him as Heavenly Father. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Would you say, here I am, I surrender my life to Jesus, I want my debts to be forgiven, not because I'm going to attend church more, or not even because I'm raising my hand, but because of what Christ did on the cross. Those of you with your hand raised, you just pray to your Heavenly Father. You are reconciled with Him. Your debt ledger has just been canceled forever and all eternity. And therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you just admit to God that you need your debt canceled. You believe in His Son Jesus and you confess Him as Lord. You'll put your hands down. Now, those of us that would call ourselves Christians, if you would just admit there's somebody in my life that I know I need to forgive. And this isn't even a confession that you're going to do it, but you just need prayer that the Holy Spirit would help you do what it takes to cancel that debt. Would you raise your hand? Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you and praise you that you see hands and hearts. And God, we have been sinned against. And so, Lord, we thank you that the power of the Holy Spirit lives in us. God, would you help us to forgive just as we have been forgiven? God, would we look at the cross? God, would we be filled with the gospel of grace? Holy Spirit, would you be at work to help us cancel debts and heal wounds? We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would, please stand as we respond. Look, we respond to the gospel. We respond to who God is and what he's done. We respond by by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes or to the giving kiosk. We're going to respond by singing together. And some of you need to respond by coming to the altar. And the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And he cares that you've been sinned against and hurt. And some of you just need to come to the altar and beg God to move in you so that you can do what he's calling you to do today. I hope you'll come.